I'll ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and we will be considering verse 1 up to verse 17. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And I would join Dr. Barker in saying, I really appreciate Jessica's song selections, especially this last one. Joy, joy, um, Christ is born. We just lit the third candle of Advent, which is the candle of joy. And this passage before us gives us tremendous reason for joy. A couple of weeks ago, we told you, we finally got our permanent residency. After 14 months of waiting for our application to be approved, and after 15 years of living in Canada. And you could tell we were overjoyed. But this passage before us calls us to even greater joy. Because it tells us that after not years, but centuries of waiting... The Messiah that God has promised has come. And beyond that, Matthew references Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 when he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And in alluding to Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, he is telling us that the coming of Jesus has brought about a new beginning. It's not the same old thing over and over. The coming of Jesus makes all things new. And so we should rejoice. But then Matthew does something very strange. And if Matthew were to be doing a public reading of Matthew 1 for Crestwick's Got Talent... I think all four judges would have buzzed in because they'd be saying, Matthew, what are you doing? You are killing the excitement by reading us the census of 4 BC. Well, first of all, it is not the census of 4 BC. It is not a voter's list. The list of names from verse 2 all the way to verse 16 is a genealogy. And this genealogy is meant to prove Matthew's statement that Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Nonetheless, it is tempting to just rush through the genealogy because, well, let's be honest. Lists like this are rather boring, especially if you don't know the people that are being mentioned. But that would be a mistake. You see, this is not a report from Ancestry.com. This is God's inspired word. And so we could think of this genealogy as something akin to a family album. Now, for those of you who have their albums on their phones, I have to explain this. This is a family album. It's a physical collection of pictures. This album happens to show... Um, the dating years all the way to, uh, I think, the first couple of years in Jamaica. 
And within each, or with each picture, there is a story that is being told. By the same token, and, and as you put together all these pictures and all these little stories associated with a picture, you see a greater story emerging, the story of our lives. And by the same token, within this genealogy, each name is like a picture. And behind each name is a story. And when we put together the names in the family album of Jesus, a larger story takes shape. And I would submit to you that it is not just any story. It is the greatest story ever told. And it just happens to be true. So let's read this story. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uzziah's wife, Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ahihud, Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matthan. Matthan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So, what is Matthew trying to tell us through the story? Well, first of all, Matthew is telling us the story 
of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. As you read this genealogy, you realize that the story of Jesus and his family is the story of God's history with his people. And it points us to a history of God's determination to keep his promise to his people. It reminds us that God is absolutely committed to doing what he said he would do. Matthew begins by introducing to us Jesus the Messiah. I like the way the NIV renders it. Jesus the Messiah because it keeps us from reading us as Jesus the Christ as if Christ were his last name. Jesus is the Messiah. And then that is repeated twice in verse 16 and in verse 17. Because Matthew wants, us to, em- wants to emphasize who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. The anointed one. And in the, to the hearers, to the ears of the Jewish readers of Matthew, they would hear that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised to his people. And that's why Matthew introduces Jesus in verse 1 as the son of David, the son of Abraham. That he is the son of David alludes to the promise of God to David that he would have a son who would reign forever. And Jesus would fulfill that promise. (coughs) Excuse me. The genealogy, especially verse 6 to 16, is meant to give us what is called the royal line of succession. It demonstrates that Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of David because he is the heir of Joseph, who is the son of David. (coughs) Sorry. So that Matthew is telling us, Jesus is truly God's anointed one, the Messiah. And that Jesus is the son of Abram might seem obvious to us because, well, if he's the son of David and David is the son of Abram, then he must be the son of Abram. But there's more to this than simply physical descent or legal descent. That Jesus is the son of Abram tells us that God fulfills his promise to Abram through Jesus. It is the promise that we read about this morning that um, Mrs. Arche read for us. God's promise to Abraham was that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's why the book of Matthew ends with Jesus declaring, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now you'll also notice in verse 17 that Matthew arranged the genealogy of Jesus in three sets of 14. Now it's not meant to be an exhaustive genealogy. It is a selective list that is intended to make a point. And the rendering the father of 
is probably better rendered the ancestor of, because it's not necessarily direct parentage, but in the lineage of. And again, the story of Israel is told in terms of promise, kingship, exile, and return, and culminating in Jesus as the messianic savior. And the fact that it had taken 42 generations to bring the promise about makes the point that God will keep his promise however long it might take. I mean, think, think of yourselves. How many generations can you count back in your lineage? Can you remember your great-grandfather, great-great, great-great-great? I mean, maybe you can remember eight generations, ten generations. We're talking 42 generations at least. So that Matthew is saying, look, it took a very long time for the promise to be fulfilled. But however long it might take, God keeps his promise. So that Christmas is about God's utter reliability and trustworthiness. He keeps his promises. And so we rejoice in him. Second, this story tells us about God's ability to keep his promises despite human weakness and folly. As we drill down into the genealogy, we realize that the family of his history of Jesus is full of human frailty and failure. We begin with Abraham. In the passage that we read earlier, we are reminded that Abraham's wife, Sarai, could not conceive. They left Ur when Sarah was 60 years old, and she'd never had a baby. And we are told later on that she had a baby at the ripe young age of 90. So Isabella, <laughs> we're not expecting that. <laughs> Just saying. And that's not the only thing. Isaac and Rebecca. I mean, Isaac couldn't even get a girl. Abraham had to find a wife for him. And they couldn't have kids for a while. And then Jacob. And you might say, well, Jacob had 12 kids. Um, if you look back at the story, the reason why Jacob had 12 kids was that Leah kept having kids, but Rachel couldn't have kids. And so she gave him her maid. And Leah gave him her maid. And they kept punching out babies until finally Rachel had babies. Bottom line is, it seemed inconceivable. When you think of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, it seemed inconceivable that Abram's descendants would be as numerous as the stars. But please understand, even when it seemed that the promise could not be fulfilled, God still kept his promise. He kept his word, and so we can trust him because he is able to keep his promise. And there's something else that this genealogy shows us. You will note that the first set, the first 14, ends with David. 
You might say that's the highest point in Israel's history. But then you move on to the second set, and we are told about the exile to Babylon. That is the lowest point in the history of Israel. And it brings to our, our recognition that the people of God were unfaithful to their covenant Lord. It slaps us in the face with the reality of human sinfulness. Especially when you read the second list, the, the second 14, and you read the names of the kings. And frankly, it reads like a rogues gallery. You read of Ahaz in verse 9 and Manasseh in verse 10. These kings were known for their idolatry and their wickedness. And even the good kings in the list were not perfect. If you look at verse 6, you notice how Matthew describes Solomon. He says, David was the father of Solomon. So far, so good. But then you read the second line whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He won't let us forget that David committed adultery and murder. So that in order to marry Uriah's wife, he had to get rid of Uriah. We think of Solomon. We remember that Solomon received great wisdom from God. But we also remember that this man who was regarded as the wisest man in all the earth, also acted most foolishly with his 300 wives and 700 concubines. Asa, in verse 8, did not trust God fully. Jehoshaphat, verse 8, was too friendly with Ahab. Uzziah, in verse 9, became a leper because he desecrated the temple. Hezekiah, in verse 10, was prone to trust in foreign alliances instead of trusting God. What's the point? The story of Israel is a story of pervasive, persistent sinfulness. And it makes you wonder, how on earth did the people of God even survive? How did they even make it to the exile? But that's the point, isn't it? The Messiah has come not because the people of God are faithful or obedient. The Messiah has come because God is absolutely determined and completely able to keep His word. So that the coming of Jesus the Messiah demonstrates to us the faithfulness of God that never fails. He gave a promise because he had a plan and a purpose to fulfill. And the nation survived despite its sinfulness, not because they were good enough, but because God was faithful to keep his promise. His covenant faithfulness kept the nation from being obliterated for their unfaithfulness. His covenant faithfulness kept him from abandoning this terrible set of people. And friends, brethren, that's our hope in these difficult times. Because when you think about it, you and I, 
but probably just as unfaithful, if not worse. God wanted to send Jesus to save, and neither the folly nor the stubbornness of man could thwart his purposes. Or as Michael Wilkins would put it, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. God's purpose never fails because he is able to keep his word. And when you realize that Jesus the Messiah came to die as the sacrifice and substitute for our sins, then you realize that God is so faithful that he willingly gave his all so that he may keep his word. So absolutely, we can, we must trust him. And third, this story is the story of God's grace to unworthy people. We've already alluded to it, haven't we? You think of the failures that are listed in this genealogy, and you wonder, um, God, couldn't you have chosen better? Like, wasn't there anybody you could work with that would have been more faithful than these guys? But that's the point, isn't it? None of us deserve the favor of God. Were we in their place, we'd be just as bad, if not worse. So that underlying this text, this litany of failure, this list of fallen people, the text is showing us our need of a Savior. None of us will ever be good enough for God. And that's why the Son of God became man. So that those who trust in Him would be accepted by God, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus, our Savior, our representative, our King. And that's why it's called grace. And if you're here and you haven't entrusted yourself to Jesus, then you need to submit to the rule of Christ. That's the only way to be accepted by God. And if you're thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. Well, this passage actually shows us the wonder of God's sovereign grace. Not only through these kings who were failures, but also through the women who are included in the genealogy. Now, the inclusion of women isn't extraordinary in and of itself, but it's the kind of women who are mentioned. I mean, all of us have relatives that we ra would rather not talk about, right? Oh, uncle so-and-so, yeah, we don't, he, he shall not be named. Well, these women are those who shall not be named. When you think of Tamar in verse 3, you learn about her in Genesis 38. She was a Canaanite. She had been married to Judah's eldest son, Er, who displeased God, and so he died without fathering a child. And so according to the custom of that day, 
Judah gave her to her, his second son, Onan. But he also died because he displeased God. Now Judah had a third son, and he said, okay, I've had two sons die to this woman. This is my last son. I know about this. So he promised to give her the third son, but he reneged on that promise. And so what does Tamar do? Well, she pretended to be a prostitute so that Judah, her father-in-law, would sleep with her and father children by her. And that's, and um, Perez and Zerah were the fruit of that coupling. And then we find in verse 5, Rahab. Well, we know Rahab, right? Judges. She was a madam. Not a madam in the French sense. She was a madam in that she ran a house of ill repute and was herself a prostitute. And yes, she helped the Israelites, and so she was saved from the destruction of Jericho, and she eventually became the mother of Boaz. Boaz married a woman named Ruth. If you read the book of Ruth, you know that she was a virtuous woman in Israel. Oh, so what's wrong with her? Well, she was a Moabitess. And the Moabites were banned from becoming a part of Israel for 10 generations. And Moabites actually were immoral people. It was an immoral nation that came from Lot's incest with his daughter. Again, not, a, not, not somebody that you'd herald as part of your family line. And then, of course, you have Bathsheba in verse 6, who's not even named by her name. She is simply known as Uriah's wife. To highlight the fact that David had seduced her, or perhaps worse. And since Uriah was a Hittite, she also would have been considered a Hittite. Not only did they have shameful pasts, all these women were also Gentiles. They were women on the margins of society. They were women that we wouldn't want to associate with if we were Jews. Matthew is telling us the fact that God brought marginalized Gentile women into the royal line of David and into the line of, of the Messiah, God's promised anointed one who would reign forever, demonstrates the reality of his sovereign grace. He chose them because he wanted them, not because they deserved to be part of the line. It reminds us of the kind of God we have, a God who loves because he loves. If you think God loves you because you're you, I'm sorry, you're not all that. It is a grace that humbles us because it is a grace we do not deserve. 
It is a grace that leads us to be grateful that God actually chose us to be his people. And that is our greatest reason for rejoicing, isn't it? That we have received God's grace in Christ. And our status is guaranteed by Christ, who is our righteousness. It doesn't depend on our performance. But I hope you also understand that the inclusion of Gentile women helps us understand what Matthew means by designating Jesus as the son of Abraham. In Jesus, the promise of God that all nations of the earth, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. It is a grace that is extended beyond the Jews. And we should be grateful because none of us are Jews. As R.T. France would say, Matthew is making the point that in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, all God's purposes for his people, declared and illustrated throughout the writings of the Old Testament and the history of Israel, are coming to, this des- to their destined fulfillment. And here's the great part. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I have become part of this story. See, this is not just Jesus' family album. Because we are in Christ, adopted into his family. This is our family album. This is our story. We have the awesome privilege of being heirs of the promises of God and being beneficiaries of God's unfailing faithfulness. And once again, it's not because we deserve to be part of that line. Like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Bathsheba, we are unworthy of such grace. And I hope that for you and me, Christmas would be a time when our gratitude for the grace of God would be rekindled when we realize that the Son of God became man and didn't just rescue us from sin. He made us part of his family. That gratitude, though, challenges us, doesn't it? God accomplished his purpose of bringing the Messiah through the Jews, frail and flawed though they might have been. But as we look at this passage in the context of the book of Matthew, we realize that the purposes of God are continuing to be fulfilled. So here's the great thing. Yes, we're part of the story, but we're not just part of the story. We're part of the mission. The story continues. And it's our privilege to carry on that story. When Jesus closed his book, when Matthew closed the book with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus was sending his disciples out 
and is sending you and me out to be the means of fulfilling his promise to Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. So we are part of the fulfillment of God's promise, but we are also part of God's means to fulfilling that promise in our day and age. So this is the challenge for us. Christmas is a time to rejoice in the grace of God. It's a time to be grateful to God, to be awed by His grace towards us. But it's also a time to be challenged, a time to commit ourselves to embracing our calling to be God's heralds. Because the same God who is faithful to keep his promise will also keep his promise to be with us to the very end of the age so that we can go and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us the privilege of being part of your family. And God, we are astounded that you would love us, insignificant and unworthy though we may be, and love us so much that you would send your son who humbled himself to become a fully human being just like us without sin to live a fully human life that was most human because it was lived in absolute obedience and commitment and dependence upon you. And because he lived that perfect human life, he is able to be our sacrifice and substitute And as the infinite, eternal Son made flesh, He is able to be our substitute and sacrifice who would fully satisfy the demands of your justice and appease your wrath. So that through faith in Him, we are brought into your family and brought into the family business. You've given us the privilege of being your heralds, of representing you in this dark and sinful world. Oh Lord, we pray, as we reflect on the wonder of the incarnation of Christ, we pray that you'd fill our hearts with wonder that you'd fill our hearts with delight and gratitude so that like the apostles, your first disciples, we would say we could not but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. Help us to shine the light of Christ around us as we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.
the, the song that, I don't know, is Jessica going to sing it or are we going to sing it? I, I don't know what the plan. Oh, Jessica's going to sing it. The song that Jessica's going to sing is a wonderful song. It may be unfamiliar to you. But it is a song that invites us to partake. And I hope you'd listen carefully to what it's saying. It's an invitation to all of us.